Mark chapter 14. Just keep your Bibles open. And uh, I want to start this morning by giving you some preliminaries about this passage and about this lesson. Uh, and one of those preliminaries is confession time. Seems like people always love it when the pastor shares his dirt from the pulpit. I'm not really sure why that is, but I think I receive more feedback on things like that than I do the truth <laughs> in the sermons, which tells me maybe many of you came from environments where pastors were, uh, they had halos over their head, you know, and they were invincible, and that's just not the case. We see that here. These were the, the leaders of the church, and they all ran and forsook Jesus and abandoned him. And uh, your pastor is imperfect, but I'm thankful that, that I serve a gracious, redemptive God. Um, but here's a little confession time here. I did not like, past tense, I did not like prayer gatherings. I would hear that word, prayer meeting, and I'm, I'm just being honest, I would groan in my spirit. I'm embarrassed to tell you that. And by the way, that was not when I was a brand new believer. That was when I had been a believer for years, even at some times when I was in the ministry. There's your dirt right there. You got a messed up pastor. I didn't like prayer meetings for a few reasons. None of them were good enough to justify my ignoring them or avoiding them. But here's just a few. Reason number one why I did not like past tense prayer meetings, prayer gatherings. Reason number one, it seemed to me that some people thought the best place to catch up on their private prayer life was at a public prayer meeting and maybe show off a little bit. And Jesus had a lot to say about that. That's another sermon, but you can read all about it in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Number two, it seemed to me that a lot of people shared my dislike of prayer meetings, and so instead of gathering for the purpose of praying, they would gather to talk about praying and to talk about the people they were going to pray about and share all kinds of juicy tidbits, you know, about their lives and their struggles and their conflicts. Reason number three, and this was the big one for me. Here's the big muddy stuff, okay? I'm just going to throw this out there and let you make fun of the old Tommy. I didn't like prayer meetings because it seemed like a bunch of weak, needy people getting together and being vulnerable with one another. And I just didn't like that. I didn't like that. I didn't want to feel weak. I didn't want to be vulnerable. I, didn't, I wanted to be in control. Maybe you can resonate. That didn't make me feel strong. It didn't make me feel comfortable. It made me feel awkward, and very strange, and very weak. What I like to do was to get together with other people and hear good preaching and maybe some good music for about an hour <laughs> and then go on my way and maybe pray by myself. You say, well, you probably just didn't bless your heart, as they say in the South. You probably just didn't know a lot about prayer. Oh, no, no. I had notebooks filled with things about prayer, sermons that I had heard, sermons I had preached. I had a lot of information about prayer. Um, I didn't have a prayer journal. I didn't like those either. Uh, <laughs> no, I had notebooks filled with information. I knew a lot about prayer. I just didn't do a lot of it. None of it, really, in public or with other people. And here's an interesting footnote to my life as I reflect back on those times. I was resolved to, to be... Um, an important figure in the kingdom of God. I wanted to build God's church. I, I wanted to bring the forces of Satan to a screeching halt and be light and salt and, and all of those things. But as I look back and reflect on that time in my life, I see weakness. I see repeated cycles of uh, besetting sin. I see that I was stuck. I see that I was proud. I see that I was hypocritical. I was willing. My spirit was willing to do a whole lot for the kingdom of God, man, to make a dent but my flesh was very weak and ineffective. 
And you say, oh boy, here we go. Pastor's about to, to drop some conviction on us. He's going to wag his finger at us. No, that's, that's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job if he seeks to do that through this passage. But I'm not going to do that. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this opportunity since we're here in Mark's gospel. We want to pull the car over for a minute in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to show you what happens when you don't pray. I'm going to show you what happens when you don't pray. Or I could say it another way. I'm going to show you what happens when you depend on your own power, your own gifting, your own personality, your own strength to live the Christian life. And here's a footnote. I left that story unfinished. God demolished all of those reasons. Thank God he didn't give up on me and he pursued me. And one of the ways that he did that was when Jeff and I planted this church just about five years ago. When you're a church planner, that's like, I've talked to you about this before, it's a different animal, it's a different kind of beast church planning is. It's a different kind of desperation. You know, when you start with 20 people and you're just praying somebody shows up to hear the word and you're out in the community and you're doing evangelism and you're doing outreach and man, your, your, your livelihood literally is dependent on the growth in some measure of the church, people giving, people showing up, people serving. Oh, my world changed about prayer and it changed about praying with other people. This was a quote I heard at a conference that I went to from a man. He said, you've got to learn to pray. There's no other way. It hurts you not to be a person of prayer. But if you're trying to do church planning without prayer, it won't just hurt you, it will kill you. And he was right. And I got killed a little bit early in the the years that we started here. And God has, maybe I can go back and revisit Uh, just the wonders and the beauty and the power of corporate praying with this church, whether it's in community groups or a a time in the year, four times a year on fifth Wednesday when we set aside an entire night devoted to prayer. Not all night, just the the night gathering. We cancel our community groups for that week. But just a little context here. Jesus dropped these disciples off in the middle of the night in a garden called Gethsemane, which by the way, I didn't share this last week, but that word Gethsemane, it means olive press. There's just this idea of pressure and struggle and squeezing. The mission of Christ in the world is coming to a head with what's happening this night. There's a lot at stake. The mission's at stake. The disciples' involvement in the mission is at stake. There's a lot riding on this hour in the garden. And Jesus drops them off, not without any instructions. I mean, they've had three years of instruction before this. He would tell them in Luke 18, men ought always to pray and not, what? Lose heart. Well, this night, they didn't pray. They slept and they lost heart. They fled. They fought. They betrayed him. They ran away. They've had a lot of instruction on prayer for the last three years. But not surprisingly, the disciples did not pray. What did they do? They lost heart. They failed. Jesus is in deep, agonizing distress. He's staggering under the weight of what this cup that he's about to drink would mean. The wrath of God, complete abandonment, becoming what he wasn't, the sin bearer, becoming a curse, being rejected, forsaken, the wrath of God being poured out on him in full measure in our place as our substitute. He's staggering. He's sweating drops of blood, Luke says, the doctor says, which is an actual medical condition created by great agony and stress. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 said that Jesus cried out, loud, wailing, weeping in the garden. So it wasn't pretty. It wasn't a pretty sight. They had never seen Jesus like that before. 
And what's interesting to me is not what he tells them, watch and pray, but what Jesus doesn't tell them. Jesus doesn't say, pray for me. You ever notice that? He didn't say, pray for me, I'm hurting here. He did tell them, my soul is in agony to the point of death. And he says, I'm going to go over here and pray. You stay here, you ate, and watch with me and pray with me, not for me, with me. And then a little bit later, he puts Peter, James, and John, his closest, and he says, pray for who? For yourselves. Pray for yourselves that you not enter into temptation. I'm gathering facts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all talk about this night. Simple instructions, but a colossal train wreck. Why? What happened? Because of their weakness, because of their pride, because of their fear, because of their sadness, in a word, because of their flesh. Because of their flesh. That's the title of this message. Their spirit was willing, that redeemed part of them that wants to serve God like I did as a young man in ministry, but their flesh was weak. When the Bible uses the word flesh, it's not talking about your skin. It's talking about our fallenness as human beings. Even as blood-bought children of the king, that those parts of us that are the gospel hasn't gone down and massaged itself, those unredeemed fallen parts of us that still want to remain independent and trust in our own power, our own ingenuity, our own wisdom, our own personality, our own giftedness, that's what the flesh is. It's that human sense of independence, that false deceptive confidence that you and I still have in ourselves. See, our flesh is weak. We know that, we see that, we experience that, but here's the kicker, guys. Our flesh doesn't feel weak. It doesn't feel weak. It feels strong. Have you ever sensed that? It's like a person who, now I know none of you have ever done this, but it's a person who maybe has had too much to drink at a party or just out socially. And man, they think they're bulletproof and invincible, right? They're an idiot and they're acting like a fool and all the things the Bible says about drunkenness, but they don't feel that way. They feel invincible. That's the flesh. That would be an accurate, I think, parallel to what the flesh does. It deceives you and it betrays you and it makes you trust in it. It's controlling, it's deceptive, and it's dangerous. And when you depend on your own strength and you're walking in the flesh, this passage is going to show us three things that you can do. See, that's the thing. It's not that you can't do anything in the flesh. You can do a lot of things. You can do a lot of things. But they're not good things. They're bad things. They're dangerous things. Uh, So here's, I got a little visual aid for you too with these points. (laughs) In the flesh... I didn't want to call the message that. I thought some of you might get the wrong idea when you showed up here. So anyway, I want to explain to you what the flesh is and what it's not. In the flesh, you can do three things we see in this passage. One, you can fight. Some of you are fighters. You love to fight. You love to rely on your flesh and engage the Colosseum, right? You can also take flight. You can run away. And some of us are runners from way back. We get it honest. And the third thing you can do is you can fail. And we see all three of those things here in this passage. Point number one, you can fight. Now listen, don't get me wrong because the Bible tells us that prayer is war. It's war, right? The Bible says that. It even compares us to soldiers. Paul says, pray at all times. In the passage on the armor of God, comparing us to a soldier and our weapons to to those of a Roman soldier, he says, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. See, that's combat talk. Keep alert. Be on the watch. Walk carefully. That's combat talk. Keep your eye on the enemy. Suit up. That sounds like something that a commander would tell his soldiers right before they go into war. 
Because listen, following Jesus will bring you face to faith with severe conflict from a lot of powerful forces, the world, the devil, and your flesh, and human beings who represent some of those forces. And the purpose of prayer is to help us accomplish the mission. But listen, our mission is not to fight the way that Peter fought or to run away like these disciples ran away. Jesus had warned his disciples that they are in the most fierce battle of their life and that they need to watch and they need to pray and they need to stay alert for themselves. So their mission is to pray with intense, focused, kingdom-minded, frontline prayer. You could say it this way, God has given us prayer because Jesus has given us a mission. And what's our mission here at Grace Life? We put it in our in our name. We're the insiders for the outsiders. That is our mission. And you will most definitely, if you engage in that mission, you will encounter hostile forces who are going to oppose you. And you need prayer. Prayer is often the deciding factor in battle. Even enemies know this. There's a story that's historical and it's accurate about a battle called the Battle of Chester, and it was in 613 AD. And there was a king by the name of King Ethelfrith. Say that 10 times. King Ethelfrith, he was a pagan king of Northumbria, and he was going to lead his army to invade Wells. And he did. But when he got there, he noticed something very alarming. See, the Welsh were Christians. And they not only brought their soldiers, they also brought 1,200 of their praying monks and their priests with them, along with the soldiers and the cavalry and the horses and those soldiers uh, were armed, but of course the monks and the priests were unarmed. And it was very obvious. They were over there huddled together with no weapons of any kind, and they had their heads bowed. And the king, being a pagan, asked his advisors, who are those people? Well, that's, those are the praying months of, of Bangor. And they're praying for the success of Wales, which also meant they're praying for the defeat of the Anglo-Saxons from Northumbria. And the king, recognizing how great the situation was, history tells us, immediately, he commanded his soldiers, kill them first. And they did. And 1,200 priests and monks from Bangor were slaughtered in that battle. Because that king understood something that so often Christians don't. Prayer is the deciding, uh, it's the deciding factor in battle. It's the nerve that moves the muscle of God, one theologian has said. In Ephesians 6, that I just quoted to you when Paul is talking about the armor of God, he lists prayer last. Now, I don't think Paul is saying that prayer is a weapon necessarily. I think he's saying it's the lifestyle, it's the attitude that you put all the other armor on with. If he was to compare prayer to a weapon, it would be a bugle or a bullhorn. For a soldier, or in modern vernacular, it would be a walkie-talkie. That the, 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 the battle is intense, the day of evil has come, and we need reinforcements. We need air support. We need naval support. We need to call in the cavalry. We need a medic. That's what prayer is. That's what it was intended to be for those disciples, but they fell asleep. Their, their spirits were willing. They got all resolved on Jesus earlier that night. We'll never leave you. Even if everyone else leaves you, Peter said, right after Jesus promised him that he would deny him three times, he basically called Jesus a liar and said, you don't know me. I'm strong, Lord. I'll never do this. Even if all of them do, I'll never do it. He got all resolved, and he got in the flesh. And you see what happens here in this story. It's interesting because Peter is the one informing Mark. I don't know why he doesn't mention his name. He's very humbled at this point in his life. 
But it says uh, in verse, look at it. It says in verse 45, and when he came up, he went to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now look, Mark doesn't tell this. Mark doesn't tell us who this was, but, but did he need to? <laughs> John does in chapter 18. You can read that later. Did he need to tell us who this was? Impulsive, impetuous Peter, right? He, he would not pray for one hour. He wouldn't do what Jesus told him to do, but now he's going to wake up from his slumber and do something that Jesus hadn't told him to do. In fact, Jesus had forbidden this in his ministry. Violence was not the way of ministry with Jesus. And it's still not, by the way. Anytime you sense control, manipulation, violence, and aggression, leave. Whatever church you're in. <laughs> Peter would not watch and pray with Jesus. But let's be honest, we do the same thing. We feel strong, we feel empowered, but we are weak at best, and at worst, we're dangerous. See, here's what happens when you fight. And by the way, this is the classic response that the Holy Spirit gave us. Fight and flight and failure. Isn't that the classic human response to conflict and pressure? Passive aggressive, some of us run, some of us fight. Peter was a fighter. He rose up and he grabbed his sword and he swung. And by the way, Peter, thank God, was a terrible soldier, but he was, he was a much better fisherman when he was throwing a net than he was a soldier when he was swinging a sword and he missed. Now, he wasn't just trying to injure the person that he attacked. He was trying to slice their throat and cut their head off. But thank God he missed, and instead he lobbed off their ear. And I think that this is a picture of what a lot of Christians do. When we fight, when we get in the flesh, when we trust in our own strength, and resolve and power, this is what we'll do. We will attack the wrong person with the wrong weapon for the wrong reason and we'll achieve the wrong result. And Jesus has to go around and fix all the things we mess up. Anybody here want to testify to that? Have you ever fought in your flesh when things go south, when things go awry, and you get all aggressive? You get all resolved and aggressive. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get alone with a group of, of the closest followers of Jesus and pray about this. No, 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 no. No, you, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. What you're going to do is you're going to fight. And we're all like that. We're all like that. You know, the symbol of Christianity is a cross <laughs> and a slaughtered lamb for a reason. I know that rubs some people the wrong way because we want to be strong. We want to get the appearance of strength, right? But Jesus is trying to show his disciples and us, look, the way through this is not around the cross, under the cross, or over the cross. It's through it. It's through humility. It's through repentance. It's through confession, it's through weakness, and, and not through resolve, not through power, not through fighting, not through violence. That's not how Christianity advances. It never has been. And there's been a lot of historical disasters when it tried, when people were by force uh, manipulated into confessing Christ. How genuine do you think that was? <laughs> Look at the Crusades. It's a tragedy. He's just like Moses here. Do you remember whenever God told Moses, go back to Egypt and I'm going to use you as a means to rescue my people and deliver them from slavery? You remember what Moses did the first time? Remember what he did? He saw his people being oppressed. What did he do? He, he murdered an Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And you know, God had to do a, a palm plant on that, face plant in his palm. <laughs> Same thing he said, Simon, Simon. He's like, Moses, Moses, what are you doing? That's not the way. 
We're all just like them, Moses and Peter. See, everyone here misunderstood Jesus. All of them did. They, th- they thought that he's going to get violent. He's go- going to resist arrest. Judas misunderstood Jesus. I mean, they brought a cohort of soldiers along with the temple priests. They had clubs. You heard the passage read. They had swords. They had lanterns. There were probably 400 people that showed up in this garden, and Peter flipped. It makes you wonder, why did Peter do that? Where did he get that kind of courage? It's really interesting. I don't like to do this because we're in Mark, and I want to honor Mark's writing style, what the Holy Spirit included and didn't include. But it is interesting. This week I was reading in John's account. You may not know this, and maybe this will blow you away the way it did the people that were there that night, literally. Did you know that when all those soldiers showed up with the temple guard, and they walked into the garden, and Jesus, it says, walked out in front of his disciples, and he said, whom are you seeking? And John's gospel tells us, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said two words in Greek that, that are basically, I am. It says, I am he in, in your English translation, but in Greek, it's I am. They said, who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And you know what happens? Do y'all remember this? It says, all of the people that came to arrest Jesus fell to the ground like dead men. <laughs> How about that? Now, Peter probably mistook that. Yes, this is what I've been waiting on. Crown Jesus, the king of Israel, and pick up your sword, and let's get this thing done. But that's not why Jesus did that. This is Jesus' last lesson to disciples and to us. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. At any given moment, I could obliterate everyone, but I'm not going to do that. And that's why Luke's version tells us when Peter draws his sword, swings and misses, cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear, Jesus says, enough of that. That's what he says in Greek, literally. Stop it. Enough. Put your sword away. Put it back in its sheath, Peter. That's not, that's not the way we're going to bring in the kingdom. We're not going to fight like that. How easy is it to be out of step with Christ when you think you're defending him? You ever done that? Have you ever gotten into a silly argument that caused a lot of damage and relational conflict because you thought you were advancing the kingdom of God? <laughs> I've done that a lot, guys. I've done that a lot. There's a story that, that I found. Uh, this was the sad case in a dispute between two prominent 19th century preachers, Newman Smith and Robert Hall. A controversy arose between the two on some religious point, and Reverend Smith wrote a bitter pamphlet denouncing Hall and all of his doctrine. But he was having trouble coming up with a proper title to the pamphlet. So he sent his pamphlet to a good friend for a suggestion. And by the way, everyone needs a friend like this guy had. <laughs> and he said, what do you think? Now, sometime earlier, Reverend Smith had written a widely read and really helpful pamphlet about the gospel entitled, Come to Jesus. So when his friend read the new pamphlet against Hall, he sent it back with this suggestion. The title I suggest for your pamphlet is this. Go to Hell by the author of Come to Jesus. Can anybody relate? I can tell you right now, the first 10 years of my ministry, I walked around with a theological chip on my shoulder, and I was ready to engage anybody that didn't line up with my doctrine. I'm not talking about Jesus being born of a virgin (laughs) and uh, rising from the dead on the third day and being sinless and spotless. None of those things. It was like second tier, third tier, fourth tier, even stuff that's gray in Scripture and not, you know. 
I, I mean, I was willing to go to the mat, and I caused a lot of relational damage and conflict because I thought I was fighting for the honor of Jesus. That's what I thought. What I was doing was going around with my little sword, cutting people's ears off, and Jesus following me around, fixing what I messed up. That's fight. That's fighting. I know not all of you are, are in ministry like that, but maybe there's other ways that you fight. I see this all the time. I see it when I had children. I've got six kids. Four of them are in elementary school at a great school. And sometimes they'll come home and they'll share things with me about what their teacher said that I don't like, that I don't agree with, that honestly is flat out wrong. And I'm, I'm ready to get my sword out and start hacking. I am. See, guys, that's our flesh. That's our first response. Do I pray? Do I take some deep breaths? Do I consider that, you know, this eight-year-old child of mine may not have all the facts straight? They may be inadvertently leaving out some of the facts about when this homework assignment was actually assigned, right? I see it all the time in our neighborhood. I'm on something called Next Door Neighbor. Anybody on that? It's an incredible tool for a lot of things. But I have noticed, man, if, if somebody's dog, if, if a neighborhood dog poops in somebody's yard, which happens a lot, it does. People have pets, they sneak out, they poop in somebody's yard that's not their own, and then they go back, <laughs> you know? It happens. It happens. In all, I, I'm just, I'm trying to conceal it. It happens to us a lot, okay? And I, I don't know. I just don't like that. I've got kids. They play in the yard. There's all kinds of worms and that stuff when they track it and back in the house. And I can tell you right now, it's really easy, really easy to get in the flesh and to get on my keyboard and go on next door neighbor to whom it may concern. Have you ever done anything like that or seen things like that? I mean, right after we do the big October 31st outreach and everyone knows who we are, then the next week I get on there to whom it may, to whoever is letting their dog poop or the people that drive down our neighborhood going 45 miles an hour when our kids are playing in the sidewalk. Those are just some of the maybe smaller trivial applications for this, but there's bigger ones that we, we fight with our spouse. We fight with our kids. We fight with our employers. We fight with people in the church. That's our flesh. Maybe some of you are, you're just passive aggressive in that way. You just come unglued, come undone. Or you vent your spleen on social media, whatever it is. All of us can relate to what Peter did. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, I think Peter later really regretted that night. He wrote First and Second Peter, and here's some of the things that he said. First Peter 5, he said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Watchfulness is being alert to the things that tempt and seduce us. He wrote, cast all your anxieties on him. And then he wrote, entrust yourself to a faithful creator. All of those are references to prayer. All of those would put Peter in remembrance of this night, what he failed to do. I mean, he did them an attack a soldier. He attacked a kid. Malchus was probably a teenage kid that was the servant to the high priest. He attacked him with the wrong weapon, a sword. He attacked the wrong person for the wrong reason because he thought this is how the kingdom of God is going to be brought in. And it left the wrong result. Jesus having to fix it. So prayer is our secret weapon. You know, in the Avenger movies, if you like those, they always say, we have a hawk. <laughs> we have a hawk. And it's not a sword. It's, it's a cross. We have a faithful creator who bends his ear to hear our ever petition, and he understands our weaknesses and our frailties. And prayer is not overcoming God's resistance. It's laying hold of his willingness. 
But Peter and the other disciples wouldn't do that. So that's one of the things you can do when you are in the flesh is that you can fight. And we do that quite well, many of us do. Or maybe that's not you, maybe you're point two. Maybe you don't fight that well, but maybe you can turn tail in a big hurry. And you see that over and over in, the, in this account. Mark wants that to stand out in stark contrast to us. Not just the disciples, but eventually Judas ran. Peter dropped, put his sword away or dropped it. He ran. And then this naked guy at the very end that we don't know who he is, he ran. He ran away naked and left his shawl or linen or bed sheet, whatever it was. He left it in the hands of, his, of the soldiers that, that came that night. You can run away. Peter fights. The other disciples take take flight. They scram. This passage really does capture all of humanity, doesn't it? There is a book that I read years ago, and it's called Peacemakers by Ken Sand. Uh, and it's talking about how you, how you become a peacemaker. And the Sermon on the Mount talks about that, blessed are the peacemakers. And I found this image in that book. It's a really helpful image. Can you see that? And he calls this peacemaking image the slippery slope. Now, on the top of the slippery slope is peacemaking. And that's hard. It's hard to be there. It's hard to stay there. It's slippery. That's not our natural desire because on either side of the slippery slope is, on the left side is escape and on the right side is attack. And there's all kinds of things included on the attack. We talked about earlier fighting. There's assault. There's litigation. There's even murder, what Peter attempted. But over on the left, it's really interesting. There's this escape response. And here's what happens. Conflict comes. Anybody in here experienced any conflict relationally in the last week? Okay, good. <laughs> some of those were amen, some of those were groans. Yeah, you've got relational conflict. And how would God have you to respond to this relational conflict? What does God want you to be? What does he want you to do? He wants you to be a peacemaker. That's what he wants you to do. Your salt and your light and the peace that you have experienced from God through the gospel, through being forgiven of your sins, he wants you to exude that, to be a fragrance and an aroma of Christ in every place that you go. But here's the thing, guys. You can't do that in your flesh. You don't want to do that in your flesh. You want to attack or you want to escape. You want to run away. And I'm telling you what happens. When you do that, what Ken talks about in this book is you forfeit an amazing opportunity to honor Christ and to draw attention to the transforming power of the gospel. That's what you do. Because the gospel is the exact opposite of both of those. Peacemaking and gospel centrality is up here, and on the right is attack, fight, and on the left is escape, flight. There's denial, there's flight, there's even suicide as the ultimate escape, you could say. And that's what happens in this passage. That's what we see. We run from hard situations, and we miss the opportunities that God gives us. It's like I went to see Lion King with my kids the other night, uh, the live version. It's really incredible, and it took me back to 1990s when I saw that when I was younger. And there's this powerful scene, you know, whenever, I can't believe I'm using Lion King as a sermon illustration. I'm a desperate man, I'll use whatever I can. There's this powerful scene when, when Mufasa's brother, Scar, you know, that deep British voice that he has, where he tricks little Simba into thinking that he killed his father, when in fact Scar killed his father. And he says, oh no, Simba, what will the, what will the pride think? You've done this terrible thing. You've killed your father. What can you do? And he said, yeah, what can I do? And you remember Scar says this. He says, run away, Simba, run away and never come back. I don't know why, that was just a powerful scene in a Disney movie of all places for me and it stuck with me because that, that's the way I think sometimes. 
Oh, this ministry's hard. What are you going to do? Run away. Run away and never come back. I wanted to run away from church planning the first year. Okay, the first two years I wanted to run away, but it got weaker. The, the draw was weaker because you guys are so sweet and incredible, and God's faithfulness has shined through you, upholding me and my family and our leadership. I've wanted to run away from a lot of things, guys, and I know you have too. And it's tragic when that happens. People run away from hard marriage. It's just too hard. I'm out. Or a hard situation with their career. Or a hard situation with parenting. Now look, don't get me wrong. I've preached other sermons when there's abuse, when there's a lot of qualifications for this, okay? I'm not saying that it's always wrong to flee when there's biblical justification and grounds for it. But a lot of the time when we're in our flesh, we're running away from a God-given opportunity to honor the gospel. We are. That just seems easier in our flesh to run rather than face with the strength, strength and the power and the faithfulness of God head on whatever it is that's coming our way. If the disciples would have spent time in prayer, they would have been able to stand before those soldiers that came and the temple police with clubs. See, when you wrestle with God in prayer, you can stand before anybody. Didn't we learn that from our friend Jacob a few weeks ago? He wrestled all night with God you could say that's prayer. He's talking to him. What's your name? Jacob. I'm going to change your name. Remember, he was scared to death of Esau. He was scared. He even said it as prayer. I think he's going to come. He's going to slaughter me, the mothers, and the children. So he wrestled all night with God. And the next morning, he's a changed man. He's got a changed name. And if you read that account, I told you for a Lord's Day meditation, read the rest of Genesis 32 and 33. Jacob's not afraid of Esau anymore. He's just not. And his circumstances hadn't changed at all. He had changed. He had changed. Listen, when you, when you spend an hour with God united in prayer with other believers, I'm telling you, man, those problems shrink and God gets really big. He gets really big in proportion. It's not that the problems go away. They're just put in their proper perspective. Many of you uh, know who Martin Luther the Reformer is. I've just always been drawn to his life, and I was reading this week an account by one of his biographers of this encounter that he had. This was like... Again, I don't ever want to say we have our own Gethsemane because nobody has what Jesus had that night. Nobody is faced to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath on behalf of all the people who would believe. But people have said it was almost like a Gethsemane moment for Luther because he had nailed the 95 Theses to the Catholic Church door at Wittenberg and it had drawn waves of panic. It had drawn criticism from people in top places, King Charles V, Pope Leo X, all the magistrates, the cardinals, everyone was angry at Luther for what he did. And so an edict came out from his imperial majesty called a papal bull, okay? And it was basically a summons. Like, Luther, you've got to show up and you've got to answer for what you did. You've got to either recant of your teaching, burn your books, stop preaching against the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, like indulgences and all of that, or you're going to be arrested excommunicated or worse, you're going to be killed. You remember that? And so Luther was summoned. And you know what he did? With the summons that told him to recant and burn his books, he lit it on fire in the public square. <laughs> Luther was crazy, man. I love that little monk. He was a crazy dude. But eventually, his friends reasoned with him, and they said, look, you, you need to submit to, to what they're telling you, telling you to do. Some of, some of his friends did. Frederick the Wise was able to influence 
Uh, the rulers and get Luther granted safe passage to travel under the, the promise that he wouldn't be arrested, he wouldn't be harmed. But some of his other friends said, Luther, the devil's in this, don't do it. He said, I don't care if there's as many devils at the Diet of Worms as there are red tiles on the roof, I'm going. And then, you know, in Germany, every house has red tiles on the roof. So, so Luther went, and I think a lot of people have sensationalized and Hollywooded this, even the movies do. Hollywood would have you believe that Luther showed up and he stood there in the presence of all these mighty men and cardinals and popes and dukes and duchess and all the people that were there that could snap their fingers and have them executed. And they said, Martin Luther, are these your books and will you recant of them? And Hollywood would have you believe that Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. But that's not what happened the first day. It's not what happened. Do you know what really happened? Luther replied in a voice that was barely audible, his biographer said. Nobody could even hear him. They said, Dr. Luther, what did you say? And he said, I said, these are weighty matters that touch our faith in Christ, and I would like 24 hours to think it over. Do you know that happened? Luther said that. And he went back that, that night in his cell that they, excuse me, that they had assigned him, and he poured his heart out to God because he was afraid. Martin Luther, the mighty doctor of the gospel, was afraid. And he prayed that night in his cell, and that prayer was recorded. Now, I want to read it to you, okay? And I want you to think about these disciples facing the sword and the club and the fear of man and being arrested, and Martin Luther facing something similar. This was the prayer that Luther prayed that night. And forgive me for the length, but I don't think you'll fall asleep when I read this to you, okay? Oh, God... Almighty God, everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up, and how small is my faith in thee. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength of this world, all is over. The nail is struck. Sentence is gone forth. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, thou my God, help me against the wisdom of this world. Do this, I beseech thee. Thou shouldest do this by thy own mighty power. The work is not mine, but thine. I have no business here. I have nothing to contend for with these great men of the world. I would gladly pass my days in happiness and peace, but the cause is thine, and it is righteous and everlasting. O Lord, help me. O faithful and unchangeable God, I lean not upon man. It were vain. Whatever is of man is tottering. Whatever proceeds from him must fail. My God, my God, thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it. Therefore, O God, accomplish thine own will. Forsake me not for the sake of thy well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my defense, my buckler, and my stronghold. Behold, me prepare to lay down my life for thy truth, suffering like a lamb, for the cause is holy. It is thine own cause. I will not let thee go, no, nor yet for all eternity. And though the world should be thronged with devils, and this body, which is the work of thine hands, should be cast forth, trodden underfoot, cut in pieces, consumed to ashes, my soul is thine. Yes, I have thine own word to assure me of it. My soul belongs to thee and will abide with thee forever. Amen, O God, send help. Amen. That's how you pray. That's how you pray. Then Luther the next day walked in the diet of Worms, and they said, Luther, you've had 24 hours to think it over. What sayest thou? I mean, they didn't say that, but they probably said something like that. <laughs> and, and he said, unless I am convinced by conscience or by reason, I cannot recant. 
I cannot recant. My soul is held captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And that was it. And because of that, we had the gospel today preserved for us. God used that man and the other reformers instrumentally to unbury the gospel from layers of tradition and works-based salvation. He did. Thank God for it. It wasn't Luther that did it. It was Luther's dependence on Almighty God that did it. And in fact, a song came out of that time in that cell that night called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Maybe you've heard of it. It was Germany's national anthem <laughs> during that time for Protestant Germany. The power that you wield as a Christian, I believe, is directly linked to your prayer life. Now, guys, I'm not wagging my finger at you, and this, this has double application for your individual private prayer life, definitely. But because of this passage in the garden, what we see that did not happen, Jesus strategically and intentionally placed these disciples in little bands and said, pray together, pray with me, wrestle, fight, stay alert, watch. And they didn't. And some of them fought and some of them ran away, but they all failed, all of them. All of them failed. Man, I'm running out of time, but I just want to show you this. Peter learned his lesson much later. In the book of Acts, Peter was leading this. He had to think back to his failure in the garden. But check this out, Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. I wonder why. I wonder what lesson did they learn that made them want to pray together. I mean, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? You think they thought of this night in the garden? Guys, we better pray. We better unite. We better link arms and, and link hearts and call down the power of God because Jesus is ascended to heaven now and we have his spirit. In fact, this prayer meeting was what brought the spirit down. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And just a few chapters later, check this out. Now, they, when they saw, this is the, the civil authorities and the religious leaders, after Peter preached... And after he went to the temple to pray and he encountered a man who was lame and he healed him and it bothered, that's just so astonishing to me. Peter was healing people and it bothered the religious leaders so they arrested him. And so Peter is defending himself. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Pretty incredible. Changed man. Change disciples. Why? Prayer. It made all the difference in the world for them, and it will make all the difference in the world for you and for I. I believe that a lot of Christians, maybe most Christians, miss out on opportunities to see God do amazing things through them because they simply will not cultivate this discipline in their life, private or public. They're living weak, maybe defeated lives. Maybe they're stuck in the cycles of defeated sin. And they're just living on the fringes of the kingdom. I did that for years. The last thing you can do, and, and we're finishing here, I promise. The last thing you can do is, is you can fail. It's really interesting here. And I know we've taken the, the 25,000 foot view. We haven't parsed every verb in here. That's okay. You're familiar with this passage as I preached on it last time. But it's really interesting. Mark ends with a crazy footnote here. I mean, you just got to love this about the Bible. You're like, Why is this here? Check this out. <laughs> um. Verse 50, verse 50, first of all, they all left him and fled. The author in Greek, that's, that's in the emphatic position. 
in the sentence. All of them fled. Everyone's gone. Even those that had resolve and wanted to fight in the beginning, they're gone too. The betrayer's gone. The fighter's gone. All the disciples have fled. They scrammed. They hit. They, it was every man for himself. When you don't pray, it's every man for himself, guys. That's what it is. And that's what happened. And they're all gone. Mark wants us to know there's only one man left in that garden by himself to face the onslaught alone because his disciples refused to pray. And then Mark says, oh, oh no, wait, there's one other person. Check this out. Verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. What the heck? <laughs> What's this doing here? This is the, the first streaker in the Bible. <laughs> now, I think Mark's drawing our attention to something. I think Mark wants us to look at this garden scene and be put in remembrance of another garden scene. See, in this garden, it's really interesting um, some people actually think this was Mark, the author of this gospel, reflecting on his failure too. Some people think that Mark's saying, I was there and I was as bad as everybody else. See, everybody here has failed Jesus, guys. The insiders failed him, the outsiders, the violent people, the nonviolent people, the religious people, the irreligious people. There's no righteous person, no, not one. They all fled, they all ran away from God. And what we're left with here is that there's a garden and there's this incredible test that nobody passed. Everybody failed, everybody ran away, and you're left with somebody who's running away from God and they're naked. And, and nakedness in the Bible is a universal symbol for shame and for guilt and for fear. And I think Mark wants to put us in remembrance of another garden where there was this incredible test. People that were intimate with God and walked with God just like these disciples, and he gave them simple instructions. Obey me about the tree. Obey me about the tree. Big test, and they failed. And what happened? They were stripped naked, and they were, they were afraid. They were guilty, and they ran away from God. They ran outside of the presence of God, and they were banished. And there's something interesting in that first garden. You remember this. We talked about it. There's a sword in that first garden. Did you know that? When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, the Bible says that God placed cherubs, mighty angelic creatures, at the east entrance to the garden, waving a fiery flaming sword to the left and to the right, guarding the entrance. In other words, you may not enter back into the presence of God this way or you will be hacked to pieces. And I think Mark is putting us in remembrance of that because there's a sword in this garden, there's this colossal test that everybody failed, and there's only one man left standing who passed that test, and it's Jesus. And Jesus is not afraid like the other disciples were to face the little swords, the worldly swords, the worldly clubs. Why? Because he had something much greater he had to face. That's why he was in agony. He had to face the sword of God's justice. See, if you and I are going to enter back into the presence of God, somebody's got to take the penalty for us because all of us are in that garden and we all failed God, all of us. There are none righteous, no, not one. And if we're going to be back into the presence of God, somebody's got to substitute with us and take our place and get the sword of justice to fall on them. And that's what Jesus did. He said, I'll take that sword for you so that no matter what type of conflict or suffering you face, you're not going to face it alone. You have the help and the power of God. See, Jesus is standing firm and he's facing something worse than the disciples ever did. But everyone left him and they fled naked. One man said this, he said, here's the secret. If you see Jesus Christ just reversing places with others, 
You see him healing the leper, caring for the poor. If you just see him reversing places with others and forgiving his enemies, you'll say, I can't do that. And you're right, you can't. Because Jesus Christ as an example will crush you. That's why you don't hear me a lot up here in this pulpit saying, this is what Jesus did, now go and do likewise. That will absolutely crush you because you're not able to do what Jesus did. I mean, who do we think we are? The disciples couldn't. They could raise people from the dead, but they couldn't pray for an hour and be faithful to Christ. But listen to this. Jesus Christ, as an example, will crush you, but Jesus Christ, as a substitute, will save you. You see the difference? If you see Jesus Christ as an example, reversing places with others, you'll never live up to that. But if you see Jesus Christ reversing places with you and me in the garden, my friend, that will free you. That will free you. And you, don't, and you won't want to avoid prayer gatherings anymore. You want to go. <laughs> and you want to call down fire from heaven, as it were, and power and strength because what he did for you melts you and frees you and fills you with gratitude. And you want to live on mission for him and the power that he's provided. I believe really that that is what this passage is about. You can do a lot of things in the flesh, in the power of the flesh. You can fight, you can take flight, and you can fail. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But praise God, it doesn't have to be that way. God's given us a way out of that, hasn't he? He's given us Christ, our substitute, to change us, to empower us, to free us, to fill us. And that's what I want us to focus on now as we take our time of reflection and pray. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage, for this opportunity to just reflect and ponder the truths here. It's humbling, Lord, to see ourselves in that garden. And I pray we do. I pray all of us see ourselves there, Lord. Some of us are just as resolved in the flesh as Peter was. And yet failure awaits us because we're depending on our strength. I pray that we would look to you for our help. We would take the incredible gift of grace that you have given us of prayer, corporate prayer, united prayer. We will take advantage of that means of grace, Lord. Confess our sins to one another. Confess our weaknesses to one another. Ask you to heal us. Ask you to forgive us. Ask you to empower us to live on mission for you so that we don't have to run away. We don't have to pick up our own sword of contention that we can just fall on our knees, Lord, and then we can face anything because we have a faithful creator who is with us. Thank you for that charge from this passage. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.